Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Triangles Meditation Group. Today is Monday, July 3rd, 2023. And as we do each week, let's begin with a brief moment of silence to collect our thoughts in unison with all Triangles workers throughout the world, and then sound together the noontime recollection. We know, O Lord of life and love, about the need. Touch our hearts anew with love, that we too may love and give. So today we work as we do each Monday on this day that is a seventh ray day, which is very um, appropriate for building work. And that's why we meet on Mondays, because as we know, triangles is related to building and constructing anew the etheric body of our planet. And so we come together using the energies of this day to introduce people who are new to this work, to this service activity, and to aid them in answering any questions they might have about this work and also aiding them to form triangles. So if you're new to the work, welcome. And we hope that you feel encouraged to become a Triangles member. And we also come together with those of us who are already members of Triangles to work together each week in support of the strengthening of the planetary network through meditation and visualization. Triangles is a simple technique using the power of thought and prayer to uplift and transform consciousness. It's a daily practice and a long-term commitment wherein you work with two other people and you establish a line of lighting, loving, loving communication between the three of you. And you agree to vivify that triangular link every day. You work together mentally, spiritually, and in a spirit of goodwill to all humanity. Your triangle is then placed within the larger planetary network of triangles. And as the network is visualized, the great invocation is sounded in order to release and circulate spiritual energies throughout the network, releasing it into the consciousness of humanity, touching all open hearts and, remind, and minds that can respond to spiritual stimulation when it's released into the atmosphere. This work need only take a few minutes each day and it can therefore be fit into even the busiest of schedules. And so after our meditation today, we will have the return guest, um, our Argentinian co-worker, longtime esotericist, Eduardo Glamalia, who will be speaking on the spiritual meaning of Plato's cave allegory and touching on some key thoughts related to the Cancer Festival, which we're celebrating today. So we look forward to hearing from Eduardo. So as we do each week, preparing for our work together, let's engage in a brief visualization. Visualizing the planet as a sphere of lighted energy. And within that sphere, we visualize a triangle composed of the three planetary centers, Shambhala, the planetary head center, the spiritual hierarchy, the planetary heart, and humanity, the creative intelligent center corresponding to the throat. 
And we visualize these centers as three spheres of light radiating their energies, circulating the energies around the triangle, filling the triangle with light. And now superimposed upon that triangle, visualize a five-pointed star, the star of the world teacher, linking east and west, past and future, radiating the energy of love wisdom. And as we visualize these three planetary centers, we see them coming into alignment, forming one great sphere of light. This is the sphere of the new group of world servers, full of many points, many stars of light, individuals and groups throughout the world all receiving inspiration and encouragement from the spiritual hierarchy as strands of lighted energy. So let's breathe in and pull down the energies from the spiritual hierarchy and radiate them throughout the group life. We project our energies towards the hierarchy and we breathe in the energies of hierarchy, distributing them. And we visualize the entire sphere filled with light and see that energy being released into the planet, into all humanity filling the planet with light throughout the etheric network, building strands of connection and relationship and goodwill. See the planet as a sacred planet. And as we distribute the energies through the five planetary centers of New York, London, Geneva, Tokyo, Darjeeling, let's sound together the invocation of light. Radiance we are in power. We stand forever with our hands stretched out, linking the heavens and the earth, the inner world of meaning and the subtle world of glamour. We reach into the light and bring it down to meet the need. We reach into the silent place and bring from thence the gift of understanding. Thus with the light we work and turn the darkness into day. As I mentioned, today is the day of the Cancer Full Moon, the day of safeguarding. To safeguard is defined as a law, a rule, or something that's done to protect someone or something from harm or damage. So from this definition, we come to understand in some measure the solemnity and the opportunity for service offered by this day the opportunity to participate 
in the process wherein for a day the veils that separate the inner and outer worlds thin and hierarchical energies are then released through the group of world servers. This definition of safeguarding states that it is a law or a rule. Esoterically considered, a law is inexorable, embodying the intention underlying the whole purpose of divinity itself. A rule, on the other hand, is related to those within the human kingdom, to the seekers on the way, to disciples and initiates on the one hand, and there in relationship to group work, but also a rule can relate to aspirants who work with their individual application of that rule. Aspirants are free to either follow rules or not, to accept or reject, to realize or not realize the opportunity that is being offered to them. There's no imposition of these individual rules. But on the upward way of those who are learning to work in group formation, there is also no imposition, but there is, on the part of the group and its members, a growing recognition, an inner knowing, and a consequent willingness to accept the opportunity being offered and the ability to make that space within their lives to do it, to make the commitment, the non-essentials, are increasingly left behind. So on this day, those of us who choose to cooperate with the intention and its opportunity for safeguarding can collectively seek to move forward into fuller alignment with our group brothers, coming close, merging and commingling our auras so that we more fully can create a united field in which all the many colors and notes of each individual merge and blend to more closely approximate a group symphony conducted by the master musician. We seek to play our part following his lead and thereby aid in the fulfillment of his purpose, a purpose of which in reality we really know nothing, but we still choose to cooperate. In this day and age, there's much talk about UFOs, extraterrestrials, and cosmic energies pouring into the planet from many and varied sources. We are, after all, simply part of a great system of interlocking energies. But here on our planet, Closer to home, there is much that is occurring to which triangles workers provide an outer manifestation of an inner process. As we know, subjectively speaking, our planet is already sacred, and we're in process of precipitating that sacredness onto the physical plane. I found a most inter interesting description of an inner plane happening which I thought might be of interest to share with the group. It was found in a book about life after death called The Life Beyond the Veil, which is a transmission from a woman who'd passed over to the other side to her son. And one such experience she described was a scene wherein she and a small group of others witnessed what she was told was work being done by interplane scientists. The group entered a large circular hall or structure to witness a demonstration. On the walls of the building were carvings of the heavenly bodies of our system, including our earth, as well as plants and animals. These carvings were not so fixed on the walls, but they were on a, a slight ledge and they were capable of movement. Suddenly, as they looked down on the scene, a blue mist began to fill the central space in the room. 
And then a ray of light swept around the hall and rested on the carving or globe on the wall that represented the earth. And as the light hovered about it, the sphere appeared to absorb the ray and became luminous. Then another ray of light was sent to the earth of a deeper and different kind. And then the globe left the pedestal on the wall and began to float out from the wall. It approached the center of the room and immediately grew in size until it became a great sphere, glowing with an intense luminosity, floating in blue space and revolving slowly on its axis. The group gathered was able to see all the oceans and continents and the cities, and they could even see the people as they exist today. But then the scene changed and they went back in time through the long, long history of life on earth, through its many ages. It was as if time was immaterial. The group was told that this hall was used for many experiments regarding the interrelationship between the different planetary spheres stimulating their ability to work together to foster the progress of the whole solar system of which our planet has a central role to play. So today we stand as a collective vehicle for the energies of cancer, the sign whose keynote is in close alignment with the work of triangles, a sign which provides an inlet for the seventh ray, for letting the temple of the Lord be built. Triangle's members are helping to build this temple by reconstructing the planetary etheric body, making our planet a lighted house. And it's interesting to note in this regard that the New York Center, the planetary Ajna, stands as the center of the five-pointed star of energy distribution of the planetary centers and is governed by the sign of cancer. Cancer is a sign of mass consciousness. And so this day provides us with the opportunity, this day of safeguarding, to widely spread abroad the inpouring energies released through the cancer full moon. Cancer also relates to the ashram, to that which lies beyond the veils of this world of outer seeming, beyond the veils of glamour and illusion. It is the realm of the clear light. So under this energy, we can now take the opportunity to move together through the door beyond the curtain and enter into that space wherein the air is clear and electric. So let's work together now with our meditation. Integrating as a group, focusing ourselves as a group upon the mental plane at the center of the cross. Linking in thought as a soul, as a point of love and light with all people throughout the world who are also working with this Triangles Meditation Group. We breathe in and project a rainbow bridge towards the spiritual hierarchy and we sound the affirmation of love. In the center of all love, I stand. From that center, I, the soul, will outward move. From that center, I, the one who serves, will work. May the love 
of the divine self be spread abroad in my heart, through my group, and throughout the world. Using the creative imagination, link with two other points of light to create a triangle of light. And now visualize the triangle in which you are working as an essential part of the Radiant Worldwide Triangles Network. Now hold the consciousness immersed within the light of the group soul, the heart of love which underlies and infuses the network. Now lift the consciousness to the world teacher who stands as the heart of love at the center of the spiritual hierarchy and also at the heart of each triangle. Now holding the alignment between your triangle, the planetary network of triangles, the group soul, and the world teacher, hold the mind open and receptive to the importing energies of love. Visualize the energies of love, light, and goodwill circulating in and around the triangle's network from point to point and flowing out through the network into the hearts and minds of people everywhere. Visualize these energies unifying and eliminating all divisions within humanity, healing and transforming human consciousness, a 
establishing right human relationships. Linking together as a group, we sound the mantra of unification. The sons of men are one, and I am one with them. I seek to love, not hate. I seek to serve, and not exact due service. I seek to heal, not hurt. Let pain bring due reward of light and love. Let the soul control the outer form and life and all events and bring to light the love that underlies the happenings of the time. Let vision come and insight. Let the future stand revealed. Let inner union demonstrate and outer cleavages be gone. Let love prevail. Let all people love. Visualize the whole planet alight with triangles. See new triangles being formed everywhere. Distribution, sounding the great invocation silently or aloud. And as we repeat each stanza, let's visualize the network acting as a link between the world of spiritual realities and humanity as a channel through which light, love, and divine purpose may flow into human consciousness. From the point of light, within the mind of God. Let light stream forth into human minds. Let light descend on earth. From the point of love within the heart of God, let love stream forth into human hearts. May the coming one return to earth. From the center where the will of God is known, let purpose guide all little human wills, the purpose which the masters know and serve. From the center which we call the human race, let the plan of love and light work out and may it seal the door where evil dwells. Let light and love 
and power restore the plan on earth. And now, Eduardo, I'd like to welcome you. Hi, Kathy. Hi. And please, thank please you go for, ahead. Thank you for an inspiring introduction. And hello, everyone. Today, I will share some thoughts from another country and city ruled by cancer. <laughs> I will deal with an ancient story, which, in my view, is still so meaningful for us today the need to explain ideas and meanings which our daily language fails to convey is an ancient problem. Certain truths and secrets were preserved in stories apparently very simple, but with deeply symbolic content. And that was for two reasons. First, the need to protect that knowledge from those alien to a certain circle of students the unprepared, so to say, but mainly because their meaning was of such a nature that it could not be conveyed by normal language. Thus, great sages used stories, fables, allegories, parables, which were meant to hide, to hide some deep truths, which could only be understood by a developed intuition or with the possession of certain keys. Those stories mainly fall under the category of what we call myth. And myth is a notoriously hard concept to define. What the ancient Greeks called mythos was quite different from what we in the media nowadays call myth. Originally, myths were tales, stories handed down from generation to generation. In archaic Greece, the memorable was transmitted orally through poetry, which often relied on myth. But the question often arises whether myths, including those stories we were told as children, hide some truth. And in this sense, a curious statement by H.P. Blavatsky, made in The Secret Doctrine, is often overlooked. She said that the study of the hidden, hidden meanings in myths and legends had occupied the greater portion of her life. This is something, isn't it? She was convinced that no mythological story has ever been pure fiction. Each of them has an actual historical lining to it and is a vehicle of certain universal truths being passed on. Of experience and learning, revealed and acquired of the early races of mankind, those human, those human beings who existed in times unrecorded by official history, found their pictorial expression in allegory and myth. And why? Because she thought the spoken word has a potency, a power, unknown to, unsuspected and disbelieved in, by the modern so-called sages. Certain vibrations in the air are sure to awaken corresponding powers, she said. Therefore, those events had to be harmlessly recorded in symbols or stories so that their hidden meaning could be unveiled by free thinkers and intuitive people. So Blavatsky spoke of an ancient 
prehistoric universal mystery language of symbols and myths. When Alice Bailey in the, the labors of Hercules calls the hero that great and ancient son of God, she means the hero really existed historically. However, as with Christ or Buddha or Krishna and others, the important point is not whether they existed or not, but their exemplary character. That's to say their stories are meant to teach us something about ourselves and serve as a model for the modern disciple on his path of spiritual unfoldment. But starting with the beginning of the seventh century BC, philosophy began to emerge. One of the greatest philosophers, Plato, broke to some extent from the philosophical tradition in that he keeps using myths and gives them some role to play in his philosophical discourse. There are many myths in Plato's dialogues, traditional myths, myths that he invents. And in general, he uses myth to teach philosophical matters that may be too difficult to follow if expounded in a, say, a blunt philosophical discourse. To some, it seems strange that a great philosopher like Plato resorted to myths as an educational means to explain certain ideas. He was a master of the Greek language and had all the capacity to use speech and words to explain any truth, no matter how obscure it may be. But he was also aware that in some cases, a simple symbolic story would speak louder than a million words. Plato was a student of the acclaimed teacher Socrates, and perhaps the most influential experience in Plato's life was, was the death of his revered teacher. Plato was about 28 when Socrates was condemned to death by drinking the notorious hemlock. Following Socrates' death, Plato left Athens and traveled to Egypt, where he is said to have sought initiation into the Egyptian mysteries. After a final rejection, the ancients, according to tradition, did instruct Plato in the sacred and spiritual doctrines, and he came to be advanced in knowledge and understanding of the ancient mysteries. Following his travels and intellectual search for light, Plato returned to Athens and established a school, the, Acad the Academy, where he instructed some of the greatest intellectual minds of the Western civilization, including Aristotle. And today many scholars are sure to claim that he taught more than he wrote, and that there was an inner secret spiritual teaching being discussed and practiced in his academy. Now, in one of the largest dialogues, the Republic, Plato uses a powerful allegory. This allegory is a kind of myth meant to illustrate and instruct. In this story, human prisoners are held captive deep in the earth. Their necks and ankles chained. They have never seen the outside world, the sun or each other. They are bound facing a stone wall. Light from the outside world shines in the cave, casting shadows on the stone wall each prisoner is facing. Behind the captives is a fire, and in front of the fire, a walkway on which men carry puppets and items from the outside world. These items include statues of gods, men, animals, and trees. The bondsmen have no understanding of their condition. Their world is made up only of the illusions of distorted shadows cast upon the stone wall before them. The sounds and voices heard by those kept enslaved are only echoes from the outside. As they sit in darkness, their reality is limited and their morals only based on their own understanding of distorted truths and sounds from the outside world. The allegory continues to explain that the prisoners cling to their own prejudices and self-conceived notions of reality. Plato asserts that if the prisoners were released to turn and see the elements that created their reality, 
the prisoners would be blinded by the light of the fire. The prisoners, according to Plato, would quickly become angered by what they viewed and desire to return to their shackled condition. However, Plato presents an amazing assumption. If only one prisoner had his chains removed and dared go beyond his initial discomfort, the response would be vastly different. The prisoner would turn to see the fire, the walkway, and the other prisoners bound in a blind state. The allegory continues with the prisoner being led out of the cave by an agent and presented to the sunlit outside world. There he would finally see with his own eyes that the realities and morals of his world were only based on illusion. And so let us give this analogy some thought. Plato's allegory begins with men in a darkened condition. The men of the cave are groping in darkness and bound to the blighted beliefs of superstition and self-prescribed truths. It is noteworthy to point out that the allegory takes place within a cave. Caverns may be considered symbolically to be a symbol of, of the darkness of ignorance as they are impenetrable to the light. So the cave is a symbol of imprisonment of a human soul and mind by ignorance, glamour and illusion. The cave is an enclosed place, but also a protection. Hollow and self-contained places are related to cancer and the moon, the sun, and sign the sun is now passing through. These limits contain everything that we consider our own, our kin, our past, our family. So in some way, a cave indicates the early stages of human growth, the childhood. Aristotle said that life on earth may be compared with life in a cave. The shackled individual in Plato's cave is kept in darkness to reality. During this time, he uses shadows and distorted noise, noises to conceive the reality that is around him. At first, every aspiring human being is held in the bondage of ignorance, but at some stage, an inner urge is noticed and one searches, gropes, gnaws for oneself. We are no longer satisfied by the broken images of ourselves and we begin to suspect that everything we hold true and solid are but passing shadows. But then Plato presents an occurrence where, where all the prisoners are released to turn and see the images within the cave. But their, their eyes are not able to adjust to the offensive brightness of the fire slide. They quickly become disappointed by the image and desire to return to their once darkened condition. When certain recognitions are made that we feel uncomfortable, courage is needed as we feel tempted to go back to our dear comfortable things which make up our illusory world. But if one of those prisoners were let out of the cave, his shackles removed, a new world would be revealed to him. He would be brought to the understanding that he was in a state of bondage. He would see the reality outside the cave, but not immediately because he would first be blinded by the light. Let us allow Plato himself to tell us what happens then. He writes, when the prisoner approaches the light, the outside, his eyes will be dazzled and he will not be able to see anything at all of what are now called realities. First, he will see the shadows best. Next, the reflections of men and other objects in the water and then the objects themselves. Then he will gaze upon the light of the moon and the stars and the spangled heaven. And he will see the sky and the stars by night better than the sun or the light of the sun by day. 
Last of all, he will be able to see the sun and not mere reflections of him in the water, but he will see him in his own proper place and not in another. And he will contemplate the sun just as he is. So we have two aspects then, two stages, so to say. First, the recognition that everything that is finite is illusion and that all that is eternal and infinite is reality. Form, color, that which we hear, feel, or we see with our mortal eyes exists so far as it can be conveyed to each of us through the senses. Blavatsky wrote these words. She said, we all live under the powerful dominion of fantasy. However, the second aspect involves the recognition of those highest and invisible originals emanated from the thought of the unknown, which are real, permanent things, forms, and ideas. Of these, we see but their reflection on earth, and they are totally dependent upon the psychic organization of the person who beholds them. In a way, we have, as human beings, our future outlined here. And above all, can we see how true it is what the Tibetan has told us, that life is, in terms of consciousness, one of revelation. We may even imagine that the unnamed one who leads the released prisoner into the light can be one of those who are acquainted with a new type of perception and with the principles ruling a new world, namely an, a member of a new group of world servers. So the free man or woman, the determined disciple, is caused to pass through the ascension of knowledge to see the bright light at the pinnacle of the summit, where she or he is brought to full illumination and entitled to freely see the realities of the world. In the meantime, in a world always demanding update, it is good to realize that we can still learn from ancient thinkers, that there is a perennial wisdom with no due date. We wonder how many world problems would be solved if an increasing number of human beings gather the strength to symbolically leave the cave and build a lighted house and therein dwell when he has seen the true light. And we as triangle workers are helping to build the planetary lighted network, lighted house, so that humanity may therein dwell. There's no red pill for that. Ariadne's thread is to be found inside. The teaching for us here and now is that we must not trust appearances and search for the inner causes of all things and events. These ideas are just mine, and I invite you all to read this allegory and draw your own conclusions. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Eduardo. That was really a, a wonderful story for our world today. Um, what do you see as its parallels or its usefulness in hoping to come to an understanding of what's going on in the world this time. Well, this ancient story speaks to us louder than we can imagine. It's, first of all, it suggests that there's a higher reality which the human being must recognize. And it tells us about all those insights, intuitive ideas which flow in and which if followed and acted upon may lead to a greater understanding. The prisoner of the Cape must have the courage to defy all deeply rooted beliefs. I think that's the point. He was born with the idea that what is fun within the Cape is all there is. So he or she must listen to the dictates of his, her own heart and be ready to undertake a journey to the unknown. I would say a leap to the unknown. We know that. In many ways, our world has turned, or maybe it has always been a dark cave from which we ourselves must work our own way out. 
so the sun as a symbol does not only stand for that light shed on reality, but also as a soul. The released prisoner stands for the disciple who faces the angel of the presence, thereby realizing the deceptive nature of the surrounding world. He's now the divine triangle and completely able to work within the square and serve his fellow men. But in order to achieve this, an initial leap of faith is needed, don't you think? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, it's my impression that this myth is not only about light and reality, but also about service. How, how do you think the, eye of, the idea of service fits in here? Yeah, much has been said about this myth, mainly in relation to light and awakening to reality. But you're right, we run the risk of overlooking the idea of service and the incredible amount of goodwill inherent in this story, because it is about the human being, aside from any ideology, land, and the compassion of those who have in some way attained a degree of illumination towards those who are still captive. And I think that this myth of the cave keeps on repeating itself each time on a higher level as we pass from one recognition into another, which eventually leads us to a higher synthesis, which brings a different outlook on what is real and what is false. I'm sure Plato's mind conceived the idea that all the prisoners would eventually have their shackles removed and be led out into reality. So maybe it's a hope for all humankind. Mm. Yeah. The Tibetan says somewhere that to see the real is a terrible thing. You know, oh. it's <laughs> terrible in the sense of very hard to, to take uh, as, this, as this allegory illustrates. Yeah. You must meet the dweller first. That yeah. dweller on the threshold. Yeah. Um, this allegory suggests that there's a universal truth, and this may be thought today to have religious connotations, or at least it may sound controversial, don't you think? Um, is there any relationship between that idea of a universal truth, but also a free thinking? Uh, this, this allegory is all about the will to live as a, as a spiritual being, and mainly also about truth. I, I don't think there's a slightest trace of dogmatism in the story. Plato suggests that there's a higher reality, which is, is not a construct, neither of the human mind nor of language, a very widespread thought nowadays. It is there awaiting discovery by the human being and its light cannot be assimilated by the concrete mind. I think that's the meaning of being blinded. And it's, it is pure livingness. And Plato was perhaps one of those who had witnessed that reality and turned upon the pedestal of that light to bear testimony of it. And, you know, even scholars have stated that the allegory of the cave illustrates the significance of free and independent thought as a pathway to truth. Plato simply taught the things we see, touch, smell, and hear, and not the reality. We believe that all that we perceive with our senses must be elevated through the mind before true understanding can occur. So in the end, his goal was educational. And it's clear that for Plato, those who have had but a glimpse of truth must find the right words to explain and teach it. So free thinking means to assume responsibility for our own path of, to truth and maybe not to think that I can create reality at will. Uh, and well, why, why do I say this? Today, you know, I, I will take a, a sentence from the Bible. Many teachings are shouted from the rooftops, not, not only of a spiritual or religious kind, but also the idea that there are no truths. There is a sort of relativism dictating that everything is a mental construction. Of course, we're, we're happy to witness such a revolution of thought, but I see that this revolution of thought, which has brought tolerance, equality, wonderful things, it has not yet worked any deep 
change in society, neither in the distribution of resources nor in contributing another and better system of education. This may sound controversial, I know. You, you, you may think otherwise, but in some ways, I see that human minds are kept entertained and happy mainly through technology, while a real sense of joy and focus on the eternal is being, let's say, conveniently kept out of the picture. Yeah. Well, maybe it's controversial what I've said, but, you know, uh, just food for thought. Should we take these new emerging tendencies as the first signs of the new age? Well, it has been claimed that this new open-mindedness open reveals a new state of consciousness, which is a symptom of a new racial type emerging. But at the same time, we are warned by the Tibetan that the outstanding type of awareness of the coming age, uh, coming new race is mystical perception and an intuitive understanding and control of energy. Their main contribution to humanity being the transmutation of selfish desire into group love. Group love. Through our triangle's work, we are helping to create that new state of awareness. I sort of fail to see this being emphasized today. Uh, well, maybe in isolated individuals, but uh, I see it sort of a crisis, a world crisis. Have you found any trace of the idea of group work in and group love in Plato's writings? Yeah, yes. In, in his own way, Plato spoke about group work. In his seventh letter, he made clear that certain subjects admit of no verbal expression. They can only be brought about in the soul through group communion. There's a special word in Greek for that. And this is done, as he said, as light is kindled by a leaping spark, he wrote. It seems that clear that group communion, understanding and work were being taught, at least within the inner group. Well, maybe I should open it up now to the larger group here and to see if anyone would like to raise their hand. Uh, and share with the with Eduardo some thoughts or reflections that you might have on this work. Um, or perhaps there's something in the chat box. A lot of thank oh. yous. <laughs> well, a lot of thank yous. Uh, says uh, Michelle, uh, thank you for your presentation. I like that last artwork that showed the one enslaved viewing that uh, yeah what appeared to be cell phones i like that too <laughs> yeah, i found that picture that's quite the picture i want to to show yeah uh well in a way uh technology is a very useful thing we find it so but in a way it's it's also in, in some way enslaving doesn't uh, it yeah and, uh um Maybe the cave is also our mindsets that were hammered into us by education, fashion, zeitgeist. Yes, the spirit of the time, the zeitgeist. And that after all, Mother Nature is that reality we rediscover once we let go of our pet ideas. I think that's the point. Uh, to let go of our uh, ideas, that pet, petty idea ideas that built our world, our surrounding world. In that, in that sense, the mind, I would I would quote Blavatsky here, the mind is a great slayer. We we have to slay the mind. It's it's not that we we don't need a mind. It's it's that it creates a sort of reality around us. We must in some way search for the inner causes that that which lies beyond, so to say. Yeah. And we're all, yeah, very thought-provoking. I think, uh, well, it has been said that we're all prisoners of the planet, yeah. In, in, in a way, that, that idea, well, very, very graphically presented in that movie, The Matrix, is a very ancient Gnostic idea that 
we are entangled in matter and we have to work our own way out of that entanglement in matter. In some degree, each of us is bounded in a cave of our own limited understanding of reality. And yet our tendency is not even realize that we don't know what we don't know. That is, we don't know what is beyond our current understanding and beliefs, reality about oneself, about others, about the world and about the spiritual dimensions. Therefore, each of us needs humility quite right, and open ourselves to greater light and understanding, so said Matthew Martin, really. Well, I think we're in time, aren't we, Kathy? Yes. Uh, thank you. Yes. Thank you all for, for your command, comments and, and words. Yes, thank you so much. And thank everyone in the group for their participation and for holding the group in the light on this day of safeguarding. So why don't we all just uh, take one last moment to visualize the planet surrounded by a, a network of golden triangles, radiating light and goodwill, helping to safeguard cooperation with hierarchy, safeguarding our planet, our humanity. Thank you, everyone.